There's a story that, uh, a kind of a modern day parable that I have relayed to you in, in the past, but uh, it's something that co- I would say comes to mind often, and I think it's worth relating again as we jump into our topic here this morning. This, this modern day parable is titled, The Life-Saving, Life-Saving Station. It goes like this. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one little boat, and a few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the, for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to be associated with the station and give their time, their money, and effort to support the work. New boats were brought. New tr- crews were trained. The life-saving station began to grow. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and, and poorly equipped, and so they felt it was necessary to create a more comfortable place. Should, you know, and that should be provided as kind of a first refuge for those who were being saved from the sea. And so they replaced the emergency cots with very comfortable beds and they, they put in better furniture to, to, and in a very much, uh, and in a large building. And now the life saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and friends. And they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club, you know. Fewer members were not so much as interested in going out to sea on a life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was even a, a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and they were sick, and some of them were foreigners, and the beautiful new club was in chaos. Immediately, the, proper, the property committee hired someone to rig up a shower house outside of the club where victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt they were unpleasant and kind of a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. A small number of members insisted upon the life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. The small group's members were voted down, however, and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. And as the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters. But most of the passengers drown. You know, this modern day parable, I believe, reflects kind of a a similar evolving drift 
kind of a similar confusion, maybe even club mentality that can and actually does occur within the church. Especially when you consider the issues of primary importance, there has been a noticeable ambiguity as to what the mission of the church is and what the gospel is. Regarding the gospel of Jesus, it's not uncommon for many churches today and even denominations today to be deceived in thinking that the gospel needs to be more palatable or more acceptable. So we got to tailor the message where people are more uh, encouraged to receive it. And so they may kind of, they may convey messages such as, God loves you just the way you are. That's all you need to know. He just loves you the way you are. And while that statement is true in part, it is probably more accurate to say that God loves you in spite of who you are and has every intention of transforming you or changing who you are. So the gospel of Jesus has no intention of keeping you the same. It has every intention of remaking you so that you might be the Christ-like version of you and dead to your flesh. Or some people might convey this, and it's not uncommon, especially in our day and age today, that all religions lead to God, or all religious roads that are sincere ultimately or eventually lead to God. And if this is true, then Jesus isn't the only way to God, and that creates options. But it is also a sham to the song we just sang and to the passage we just heard. Because if Jesus is only one of many ways and he's not the only way, then that makes the death of Jesus irrelevant and unnecessary. And it's kind of a sham to our Savior. Regarding the mission of the church, many, uh, the mission of the church many churches uh, have become maybe less concerned about making disciples of Jesus and then the, and the growth or growing obedience to Jesus and instead become more concerned about the potential humanitarian needs or, or social justice. Again, nothing wrong with social justice, nothing wrong with humanitarian needs. But unfortunately, what happens in the church when we think about the mission of the church is that we can oftentimes think of the mission of the church more as a focus on human trafficking, AIDS, poverty, homeless, environment, CRT, BLM, fill in the blank. And the fact is there's a kind of a twofold danger in when we get the gospel wrong. You see, if, we have a, if there is gospel confusion, then in turn we will also have mission confusion. If we have, if there's gospel ambiguity, if we don't really, if we don't understand what the gospel is in its purest essence, then we will also likewise not understand what our mission is as we have been commissioned by God to fulfill. Even 2,000 years ago, after Jesus had already resurrected from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, we see that the disciples were still concerned. They were still focused on, well, Jesus, it, it is now the time you're going to restore your, the kingdom to Israel. And they're thinking from a social or political perspective. 
Yes, they knew that God had all these other promises. There's all these other prophecies about kind of a new heaven and a new earth. They didn't quite fully understand that, but what was on their minds, what they cared about at that moment was, is now the time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel on a political or social level? And Jesus responds to their question by first saying, no. This isn't the time This is not what I am coming to do yet. And then he goes on, he proceeds to tell them, this is what I want you to be consumed with until I come. This is what I want you to be busy with, in other words. This is is your mission until I return. And what mission was that? What mission was Jesus referring to? Well, that the answer can be explained in two ways kind of two sides of the same kind. They're two sides of the same coin. There's two ways to understand how or what the mission of the church is. The first is our mission is to be Christ witnesses. And secondly, our mission is to make disciples. To be Christ witnesses and to make disciples. We're gonna take those and just unpack those for just a moment. In Acts 1.8 Again, just prior to Jesus sending into heaven, Jesus gives this promise and this encouragement to his disciples. Again, not just the 12, but all believers or followers of Jesus at that moment. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, and throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says that you will be my witnesses. Now, what is a witness exactly? A witness testifies to what they have observed or what they have experienced firsthand. A a witness offers verbal testimony to what is true. So, specifically, what do followers of Jesus bear witness to? Followers of Jesus are witnesses to the gospel of Jesus, And what I mean by that is, when we think about the gospel of Jesus, though there are many things that could be included to follow that, what the gospel of Jesus is, it is, you know, one way to understand it is reconciliation with God. What is the gospel? It means that the reconciliation with God, if you look way back in Genesis, you realize that God created everything. Everything he created was good. It was perfect. We were created to be in relationship with God. It was, as, it was as God intended, as God designed, and yet everything was sabotaged by this thing called sin. Adam and Eve were even perfect. But as soon as they rebelled against God, sin entered the world. It corrupted everything, not to its fullest extent, but it distorted everything. And now God has since that time been on this grand redemptive rescue mission of people because sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so God is in the process of eradicating and destroying and conquering sin And everything we see from thousands and thousands of years ago, even to this day and until the end of days, is all a part of God's redemptive plan to rescue people from the kingdom of darkness and to transfer them to the kingdom of his beloved son. What is the gospel? It's reconciliation with God. Sin separated, sin tore that apart 
And God's love and his grace reunites it and brings it back together. What is the gospel? The gospel is relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship that is available to anyone who would call on the name of the Lord to be saved. The gospel is that the fact that Jesus is the only one who is worthy, that he was the only worthy sacrifice. He's the only one who can make us right with God, who could make us righteous before God. He's the only one who could, in, uh, who could remove the enslaving power of sin and death. He conquered it once and for all. He's the only one who offers eternal life that can never be taken, that is imperishable, that is uncorruptible. What is the gospel? It all centers on the person, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Most distinctly, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Of course, there are a lot of gospel implications. But if you're to simplify it and synthesize it down to its most basic sense, that is the gospel. It's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. Paul goes on to say, not only as a witness, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. An ambassador represents and carries out the wishes of another person, usually someone sovereign. And in the Christian sense, an ambassador implores people to be reconciled with God. We might actually use the term, this is what you might uh, define as an evangelist. I just got back this week from my grandmother's memorial. She was 97 years old, young, I should say. It uh, It was a celebration. It was still hard. It was my last grandparent. But at the same time, it was a celebration. She lived a full life. And I think the most encouraging part in this graveside service was that fact that we're sitting there, the gospel is being proclaimed, and, and, and you always get to hear about someone's life. You hear about the things that were important to people. And I was reminded afresh, even though I've never forgotten, but it just, it just brought me back to that place again. My grandpa and my grandma Bacon were evangelists. There was a sense of urgency everywhere they went, every single day. I've kind of mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. I re, even, my grandpa was even talked about, and my grandma was such a great supporter of my grandpa. He talked about Jesus everywhere. You could not leave a conversation without him knowing, have you made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? Grandpa Bert always made sure before the conversation was over that Jesus was the center of it. And he brought you to a place of decision. It wasn't just like, have you heard about Jesus? Oh, no, okay, maybe you want to talk about it sometime. No, Grandpa was like, I'm going to talk about it, and unless you run away from me, I may run after you. Unless you run away from me, you're going to hear the gospel. And at the end of his life, after 92 years, 93 years, his, his latest Bible had three pages of like eight-point font of names, row after row after row after row, front page, back page, front of names of people he led to Christ. My grandpa Bert was an evangelist. My grandpa and grandma, they were witnesses. 
They were ambassadors. They implored people, as Paul would say, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're all making tons of decisions in life. We're all making important decisions in life. And the greatest decision anyone will ever make this side of eternity is, are you reconciled with God? And while some people, like my grandpa, may possess the gift of evangelism, the Bible is very clear in saying that we're all called to evangelism. We're all called to be witnesses. We're all called to bear witness to the goodness of God as perfectly expressed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us, we have been commissioned, whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, we have been commissioned to be his witnesses. And where are we his witness? Where are we supposed to be witnesses of Jesus and to the goodness of God? Everywhere. Everywhere. Which means that the gospel is not just a Western thing. The gospel is not just a Jewish thing. The gospel is a worldwide rescue mission of all people, of all tribes, of all nations. If you look at Revelation chapter 7, you get that picture. It's the first time the universal church comes together and worships King Jesus for who he is. The gospel is for everyone. And God wants to make his appeal Guess who? Through you. Isaiah says in Isaiah verse, chapter 49, verse 6, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make a light to the Gentiles and, I will, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Church, let me ask you something. Do you know of anybody, do you know of somebody right now somewhat personally, that does not yet know Jesus? Can you think of somebody? Is there someone that comes down, maybe you work with them, maybe you live by them, maybe you see them often at least, maybe you grew up with them, maybe you went to school with them. Do you know somebody that does not yet know the saving power and the eternal guarantee of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a second question. How are they going to know about the goodness of God? Who will tell them about the goodness of Jesus Christ and what he offers freely? I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. He asked the same, similar questions. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. A witness is a messenger of good news. Are you a messenger of good news? What is our mission? Well, one way to understand is that we are witnesses for Christ. 
God is making his appeal through us as his ambassadors. But a second way to answer that question is that our mission is to make disciples of Jesus. A very classic, well-known passage that many of you probably even know by heart. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' final words, at least according to the Gospel of Matthew, before Jesus departs, he tells his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A second way that we can understand what the mission of the church is is that the mission of the church is to make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Well, first of all, maybe it's helpful to understand what it is not. A disciple is not someone who just is spiritually aware. A disciple is not just someone who believes in God or even believes in Jesus. As James highlights, even the demons know that. A disciple is not someone who just knows the truth and can regurgitate facts and figures, maybe even regurgitate a lot of memorized verses. No, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. I mean, the very definition of a Christian, right? The word Christian means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And But what it, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ more clearly is to be obedient to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. So a disciple is one who not just follows, but follows, shows their following through their obedience. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey me. This is why Jesus highlights in Matthew 28, verses 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Part of what it means to make disciples is that we, we tell people, this is what God has said. This is how he's designed life. This is what he's called us to be faithful to. Teaching is not just to, to grow in our knowledge. It's not so we can pass Christian jeopardy or something like that. No, the, the teaching that we are seeking to implore and to instill and, and to become fundamental in our lives is so that, so that we become obedient to God. That's the ultimate litmus test of our discipleship. Are we obedient to God? And yet it's so easy to, to kind of think or even be distracted, maybe even be deceived and thinking that I'm good with God based on what I know. The Pharisees knew the law better than most people. And yet Jesus has some pretty bold, harsh words for them. You might think that I believe it because I believe God exists and I, and I know Jesus is the, the Savior of the world, therefore I'm a Christian. Maybe. If you love me, you will obey me. You see, the distinction between a true disciple of Jesus and the one who is not is evidenced by one's obedience. And so disciples are, are followers of Jesus who are obedient to the commands of Jesus. And what, have been, what, are, what do disciples of Jesus, what have they been commissioned to do? What have we as disciples of Jesus been commissioned to do? To make more disciples. 
Remember what I recall, uh, when you walk into the front door there, there's two messages. There's the vision on the left, and then there's the mission on the right when you walk in the front doors. And the mission is to make disciples that make disciples. That's what we are supposed to be busy with. To make, follow, to make disciples of Jesus, disciples of Jesus who are obedient to Jesus, who understand the commands of Jesus, who are in the, the word of God so they can be obedient to the words of Jesus. It's interesting, when you look at the Matthew 28 passage, there's really only one verb, not to get all grammatical here, but it's important. There's only one verb. You know, Jesus says, go. No, that's actually a supporting participle. The main verb, the only verb in that whole passage is actually make disciples. And then there's all these supportive words. We call them participles. And they tell us how to implement the command. So a better way to translate that passage is, in your going, make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. Those words tell us how we are, so going, we are supposed to go about making disciples of Jesus. By the way, Corey already mentioned this, but we have baptisms coming up on October 10th. And if you have not yet been baptized or you're wondering, maybe I've been sprinkled and I would like to be rebaptized. Again, it's, this isn't the God is going to love me more if I do this or if I don't do this. But if you would like to be baptized, we would love to baptize you. On October 10th, we are going to be doing baptisms right here. It is one of the greatest ways to celebrate as a church family. It's an incredible opportunity. You get to testify to God's goodness. We'll record you so you don't have to talk in front of people. It's going to be very simple. But we get to celebrate God's transforming power in your life. So if you have not yet done that, or you know someone that's been kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to, why not? Baptism is really a first response or a first step of obedience. Because it's an identification with Jesus, that I'm a follower of Jesus. Now the reason why we are called to make disciples in our going, in our baptizing, in our teaching is because Jesus has all authority. In verse 18, we see that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And therefore, we want to make disciples of Jesus because Jesus is Lord of all. It is our mission, therefore, to to help people recognize and to submit to the lordship of Christ because after all, as Paul says in Philippians 2.10, one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guess what? That one day every knee includes the unbeliever. It includes those who are lost for eternity. One day everyone will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. But it is only in this life in which that acknowledgement leads to eternal salvation. And so we are imploring people, Jesus has authority. He's in charge. He is Lord of all. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Recognize that by his grace. Recognize his love for you and be saved. Now, I think a third observation that's important in our disciple-making task is what emboldens us, what emboldens us or what empowers this. What gives us that sense of urgency or that fervor? And I believe what gives us that urgency is the fact that Jesus says, by the way, I'm with you always. There's something very comforting in the fact that when we are faithful to what God has commissioned to do, us to do, 
that God doesn't just kind of say, hey, get after it, check in with me later. Now what we see that Jesus says, I'm with you through this entire process. I'm making my appeal through you, but I've never left you. In fact, oftentimes I'm giving you the thoughts and the words to say and to think and the manner in which to go about it. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's why Paul would not throw in the towel and lose heart in his ministry because he knew that Jesus was always with him and that nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so if I were to summarize what I've just kind of come to this point, because again, we're going through what is the vision and what is the mission of the church. The, the, the mission of the church is that we are Christ's witnesses, God bearing testimony to the goodness of God as perfectly expressed in Jesus Christ. And we are called to make disciples of Jesus. What does that look specifically look like at IBC? Well, let me just tell you. Our mission is to make disciples that make disciples. You'll see that on the sign. And I just want to highlight this part. This is what we're all about. There's a lot of things we could be about, but this is what we are going to be all about because here's the fact. Only disciples of Jesus can make disciples of Jesus. Only disciples of Jesus can make disciples of Jesus, but for this to happen, every disciple of Jesus needs to see themselves as a disciple maker. The question is, do you see yourself as a disciple maker? Is that something that the pastors do? Is that someone that like the uber spiritual do? Or do you take personal responsibility going like, wait, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, by default, I'm called to be a disciple maker. But Aaron, I don't know that much. That's okay. Some of the greatest disciple makers are the new Christians. They're the best evangelists. And then they're sometimes the best disciple makers because they're so absorbed and consumed with the love of God that nothing else matters. They're contagious in the right way. So it's not about how much knowledge you have. It's not about education necessarily. It's all about this. Are you being faithful to who God is putting in front of you? Do you see yourself as a disciple maker commissioned by God to make other disciples? David Platt said it well when he says, if we are not making disciples, then we have missed what it means to be a disciple in the first place. So all disciples of Jesus are called to make other disciples of Jesus. And at IBC, we're going to emphasize this or kind of promote this in three very distinct ways. There's three distinct ways that we feel that that, that kind of, and, and they actually build upon one another in successive order. So you'll see in our mission statement, you can look at it on the website if you want, and we can get copies for you if you so desire. But we make disciples by making disciples by one or first, knowing God intimately. It's hard to make a disciple of Jesus when you don't know Jesus yourself. It's hard to to point people to God when you yourself are not walking with God. And so it's imperative that you and I are, are, are knowing God and not just knowing, again, facts about him, but it's imperative that we know him intimately. That's a key qualifying word there. Jesus prayed this in John 17, 3. He says this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, 
whom you have sent. What is eternal life? That we would know God intimately. You see, your pursuit of God is the most important thing you will ever pursue in your life. Your relationship with God, your abiding relationship with Jesus is the most important and beneficial use of your time. The fact is we pursue God so that we might know him intimately. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter three. He says, I count everything as loss to the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And Paul, for a time in his life, had much to lose. And yet what we see is that I count everything as loss in comparison to knowing my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. Nothing else equates. Nothing else competes to my understanding, my knowledge, my relationship with Jesus Christ. So we make disciples by making this, and make, that make disciples by first knowing God intimately. And from that intimate knowledge and relationship, and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, then we make disciples by second, serving one another intentionally. Again, these qualifying words are intentional. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Again, it is from a healthy, abiding relationship with Jesus that we are empowered to serve one another effectively and faithfully. This is what Hebrews 10 is really, is understood in its right context. When it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word for consider isn't a passive action, but a proactive action. When you think about considering, you're thinking like, how can I serve Christ in his church? How can I empower others? How can I encourage others to fulfill their ministry? It is a proactive thought, meditation, reflection, and even prayer to God that God would use you in that fashion as you have been graced by his spirit. And so we make disciples by serving one another intentionally. And thirdly, from that, We make disciples that make disciples by engaging the world eagerly. You are a chosen race, Peter says in 1 Peter 2. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, when we are filled with the love of God, because of an abiding relationship with him, we are compelled to reach others with the same life-giving, transforming message. But if you are not filled with the love of God, if you, are, you yourself are not radically blown away and changed and transformed by this message, it's gonna be difficult to get others excited about it. You see, our greatest apologetic, our greatest message is not just the words, but it's also your life. Do people see the joy of the Lord on your face? I'm not talking about fake joy. 
I'm not saying smile because everything else in life is really hard, even as Dewey even said. Like sometimes life is just hard. Perhaps your apologetic then is not so much life is hard, but look how I'm clinging to Jesus in all the hard and difficult moments. But out of an abiding relationship with God, we are filled with the love of God. And that empowers us to serve one another and to engage the world eagerly. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels us. Again, we are going through a series of just what is the church and who are we as a church. We talked about what is the church and gave definition to that. What does it mean to gather as a church? Last week we talked about the vision of the church which is to glorify God in all things and to delight in him. And today we're talking about the mission of the church which is to make disciples that make disciples by knowing God intimately, by serving one another intentionally and by engaging the world eagerly. Everything we do and everything we pursue as a church family will be aligned to carrying out or fulfilling this vision and this mission. There's, a, there's an advantage to that. There's a reason why we have an established or explicit vision and mission. And the reason for that is because it helps us filter what to say yes to and what to say no to. Because here's the deal. There's a lot of good ideas. Some of you have some amazing ideas. Some of you have a God-given burden even to pursue some things that God has specifically or uniquely placed in your, on your heart to pursue. And sometimes the confusion can be like, if I'm excited about this, then everybody needs to be a part of what I'm excited about. And although on one hand we do want to be excited with you, it doesn't mean that as that is all of a sudden the new mission of the church. You see, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, for example, Paul says that he gave the apostles, he meaning God gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, my role, if served effectively and faithfully as a pastor, is to equip you to fulfill your ministry. So I'm not here to do the ministry for you. I'm not here to hear your idea and implement your God-given burden. I'm here to go, how can I partner with you? How can I encourage you? How can I be a cheerleader for you to fulfill your God-given ministry? You see, ministry is not something that's done church corporate. It's really done church individual. And there might be some groups and partnering and all all those things going on, and that's great. And you might have some ideas going, Aaron, wouldn't it be so great if we could fill in the blank? And I would say that would be great if you did that. Not because we're unsupportive. Not because we can't partner with you, even help financially with it. Not because we can't actually go, hey, you know what? There's some other people you need to talk to. But what we want to do is kind of maintain or guard with all vigilance the purity and the simplicity of the church's mission. And that is to make disciples and that is to be witnesses. Everything else kind of falls in place from that. Because the fact is, and this is how our enemy loves to work, the enemy loves to distract us not with really obvious distractions. He loves to distract us with subtle distractions. 
with good ideas. He's really good at kind of going, hey, yeah, you should just open your church up and become a homeless shelter. Nothing wrong. That could be a great idea for some of you. But the fact is, our mission is to reach lost people with the saving news of Jesus Christ. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus who are not only growing in their knowledge of Christ, but they're abiding daily with Christ and showing their abiding relationship because of their obedience to Christ. It's out of that relationship that you are empowered, that you are gifted, that you are freed up, that you are filled with the Spirit to fulfill your God-given ministry. And the fact is, I know many of you in here have unique ministries that God has wired you, given you a certain temperament for, has gifted you you uniquely to fulfill a specific purpose for the ultimate goal of bringing glory to God. And so I would just throw out this invitation. If God has laid something on your heart, my question to you is, how can we help you fulfill your ministry? Not do it for you, but how can we help you fulfill your ministry? After all, the story of a life-saving station reveals this. When we lose sight of our mission, or when, when the mission of the church gets lumped into a whole slew of ideas and other efforts, we could be in danger of merely becoming a club. We might be a church, yes, because church is people. But we may not be a church that is compelled with an urgency that people are dying unless we get after it. I love the picture in Acts 1-9. Jesus begins to ascend into heaven. All the disciples are looking in the sky. Jesus disappears in the clouds. And then two men appear. And they're just kind of look, they're all looking in the sky and they're looking at these disciples and going, What are you doing? What are you doing? This same Jesus who you saw raised into heaven is going to come back in the same way. And until that time comes, you got business to get after. We got a mission to accomplish. You know what you've been commissioned to do. So, in other words, it's kind of a proverbial hands in, let's yell break and let's get after it, right? People are dying. People need a savior. We have the message of eternal life. So brothers and sisters, how about we just get after it? And I love, can I just say, I love this next Saturday that the youth are gonna get after it. The youth are gonna go, you know what? We've been trained in this. They're already training the middle schoolers. They're already working through multiple trainings right now leading up to next Saturday. This is gonna be an incredible time. Perhaps your part in this isn't, necessarily going out with the kids, but you're going to be on your knees in prayer that God would give eyes to see, hearts to receive the saving news of Jesus Christ. This is a church-wide effort. What's your part in that? I pray that you and I, much like my grandpa Bert, would be compelled with a sense of urgency as if people's eternal well-being is at stake. Because you know what? It is. It is. Could I just say that 
that question I asked you and that person that potentially came to your mind, that person that does not yet know Jesus as far as you can tell, perhaps this week, perhaps even today is the day in which you go, you know what? I'm going to go talk with them. No more lollygagging. I'm not content with the surface conversation. I'm getting after it. I'm going to pursue them with the saving news of Jesus Christ by his grace as I am led by the Spirit and to God be the glory. Perhaps someone will be transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light because of your faithfulness. Amen?